Okay, and the story begins, friends. We are in the middle of page 29. Smack in the middle. Today's topic that we sent out earlier on the WhatsApp, bridging the gap between reality and our perception of it. This is like a central topic in Judaism. Certainly a central topic in Hasidic teaching. Um, covertly, if not overtly. And this is actually, as we're going to see throughout our many discussions after this, this is the underlying theme of prayer. This is the theme of the Siddur, is literally bridging the gap between reality and our perception. We don't perceive reality. We perceive whatever our eyes tell us. Um, that doesn't necessarily represent reality. And our hope is to sort of bridge the gap between the two. And you'll soon see what I mean. Let's start with the middle of the page. You see the bold there where it says the Lord is king. In the Hebrew, it's Hashem Melech, Hashem Melech, Hashem Yimloch, Le'olam Ba'ed. The Lord is king. The Lord was king. The Lord will be king forever and ever. We say that verse twice. Commentaries point out that we say that for double emphasis. The more we repeat something, the more we internalize it. Now, what's interesting is most of what we've been reciting, um, I'm going to say 85%, 90% of everything we've been reciting over the past 29 pages were either called from Talmudic texts or the book of Psalms or other biblical texts, right? This does not actually represent a biblical verse. There's no source for this verse. It's three different verses called together. There's no verse in Torah where it says the Lord is king, was king, and will be king. The Independently, the Lord is king. And then another verse, the Lord is right? The, those phrases do exist um, independently of each other. But as one phrase, it doesn't exist. But the source for this is actually from the Mishnah. The Mishnah tells us that this is actually how the angels praise God. Again, we were talking about earlier right before we turned on the recording for those who were having FOMO who weren't here. You weren't here live. Sorry, you're missing it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we were talking about what does it mean for a soul to be elevated? To have a clearer, a more clear and deeper level of perception, right? It's not geographical elevation, but it's clarity. Angels have more clarity than human beings do. Human beings have such little clarity, and the reason is because we have bodies, not just souls. And were we to see too much without our body, our soul wouldn't be able to... Uh, we, we wouldn't work. We wouldn't be able to handle it. You can't be in a body and see too much. It wouldn't work. So we're in a body, and we God limits what we're able to see. There's a scientific term for this called inattentional blindness. You literally can't notice everything. Um, that's why different people will, you know, notice different things, different levels of perception. And this is true spiritually as well. Angels have a much clearer level of perception. So they have the ability to realize that God truly is king, was king, will be king. And we use all three expressions, past, present, future. 
Because that is the definition of emet. Truth. What does true mean? How do you know if something is true? Okay, you could believe something. Change. Sorry? If it's 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 true until you disprove it. So it's always going to be true if it's true. Okay, so exactly, exactly. The truth In stays other words, I mean, stays. you could prove something, but it doesn't make it true necessarily, right? I could prove to you that there's a God, and it doesn't mean that there's a God. It means that I have evidence that there's a God, right? But somebody else can bring evidence that there isn't a God, and now we have a nice philosophical debate. So that's not, that doesn't necessarily, right? Proof doesn't necessarily, or evidence doesn't necessarily, is not necessarily an indicator of truth. But the greatest indicator of truth, and we can't always see this in our lifetime, is if it was, is, and will be. If it always existed, it currently exists, and it will exist. That is our def, that is the definition of God. God is, in Maimonides, in the beginning of his work on halacha, where he talks about the commandment to believe in God. Well, what is this good? Who is this God whom we need to believe in? So he says he is the original creator and he is not created. And because he's not created, he's the creator. He was, he is, and he will be. Whereas creation wasn't always and won't always be. <laughs> Unless God chooses for it to always be. But the, but there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. God, the was, is, will be. That is the definition of truth. That's why God is the only truth. That's why we say that truth also means stability. And by the way, this is alluded to in the Hebrew word emet. The Hebrew word, I should have posted this on the screen or something, but I didn't. Um, and for those listening, just visual, try to visualize this. The Hebrew word for truth, emet has three letters, the Aleph, the Mem, the Taf. The Talmud points out that the word Aleph, the letter Aleph, sorry, is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The Mem is the middle letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The Taf is the last letter, representing the past, beginning. The Mem is the middle, the present. The Taf, the end, the future. Past, present, future, that is Emmet, that is what truth is. The Talmud also says, different area in Talmud, and this is interesting, Envision the word emet, aleph, mem, taf. And I'm sorry I don't have this like on a board or on a screen or whatever. Envision the Hebrew word sheker. What does the word sheker mean? Sheker means lie. The contrast to truth. Envision the two Hebrew words. Sheker, shin, kuf, resh. Again, aleph, mem, taf. Those three letters for emet are spread throughout the alphabet. Past, present, future, truth is pervasive. Sheker, shin, kuf, resh. Those three letters in the order of the alphabet are all right next to each other. It's only that moment. <laughs> Sheker doesn't. Sheker is only a moment. Sometimes a very long moment, but it's only a moment. But the Talmud points at something else. Look at the structure of the letters. The structures of the letters have great significance. The aleph has a two-legged base. The mem has a two-legged base. The taf has a two-legged base. In the in in the physical structure of the letter. Contrast that to sheker, which means lie. The shin has one leg, right? It's three prongs that come down into one, right? The kuf, well, it's on one leg. The resh, it's on one leg. 
It doesn't have what to rely on. It doesn't have what to stand on. And when we say the Lord is king, was king, will be king forever and ever, what we're saying is that we're admitting to a deeper truth. Now, do we yet know that it's true with our, mar with our mind and heart? Not necessarily, because we haven't finished prayer yet. The whole sitter is kind of unpacking this idea. Theoretically, if we read the sitter properly by the end, we should be emotionally and intellectually confident in the truth of God. But right now, we're just, it's more, uh, on some level, more faith-based, and that's fine. But here's what we say. To, um, you know, I say this all the time, but translations are dangerous. Take a look in the Hebrew, in the bold. Where we say, Hashem Melech, the Lord is king. Hashem Malach, he was king. Hashem Yimloch, Hashem will be king. La'olam va'ed. La'olam va'ed means forever and ever. What else does la'olam mean? What is the word olam? The world. Mm -hmm. right? Olam means the world. The truth of God is relevant to this world. It's relevant here. It's not just an abstract or philosophical concept. Take a look at the last sentence, the second to last line on the bold. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name is one. This is a verse taken from the book of Zechariah, Zechariah, prophesizing what the Messianic era is going to look like. When Mashiach comes, the world the Lord will be king all over the earth. Not going to be just king in Jerusalem, just king in the synagogue, just king at the Shabbat table. But everywhere, his kingdom, his kingship will be relevant. And on that day, referring to the Messianic era, he will be one and his name will be one. What does that mean? Hashem echad ushmo echad. Hashem is one and his name is one. What does that mean? Capitalists explain what is a name? What, what is a name? A name is how someone identifies you, which means were you to exist independently, you wouldn't need a name because there's nobody else to talk to you. <laughs> when, when my dad was living in Israel, 40, going back 45 years ago, he was in the military, and it was at a time in Israel where most people didn't or many people didn't even have phones yet they were still you know it was a developing country and i'm not talking about cell phones I'm talking about phones regular phones now all the now israel's like a hotspot for tech and there was this lady he was somewhere for on a weekend or whatever and there's this lady bragging how she got a phone I got a phone i got a phone there's like a waiting list for phones and he says to her oh yeah who are you gonna call <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a name um, but there's nobody else to talk to you're on an island by yourself you don't really need that name because a name is for other people to identify you so homiletically speaking philosophically speaking what is the name of God it's not him it's how we identify him how we perceive him how we experience him in other words from uh, in Kabbalah, name of God is code word for 
how you uh your experience of him there's god there's who he is independent of you because he existed before you he created you and then there's his name there's how you identify him there's how you perceive him there's how there, there there's how you relate to him and by default our human perception and god there's a there's a big gap between the two but he is emmet and the way you know emmet is emmet is it's pervasive the aleph the mem the tough pervasive it, it, the past the, you know the first letter the middle letter of the alphabet the last letter it's all pervasive so that on that day when mashiach comes the gap will be bridged And how you perceive God and who God is, how you perceive reality and what reality is, won't be two different things. There won't be that discrepancy, that disparity between the two. When Mashiach comes, how we get ready for the Messianic era is by getting in that frame of mind, trying to fill the gap between our perception of reality and what reality is. Which leads us to the next paragraph. We say deliver... By, uh, by the way, this is just side thing, but this is in bold because the tradition is to actually stand while reciting those uh, couple of lines. In fact, if the minion is reciting those, but you're behind the minion, you're still supposed to stand. But take a look at the next line. The next paragraph, second to last paragraph, deliver us, Lord, our God, gather us from all the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory and your praise. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, praise the Lord. Let every being that has a soul praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Okay. Now we're asking God, hey, on that day, you and your name, your true self and how yourself is perceived are not going to be two different things. Deliver us. Let us experience that. We're praying to God. Let us actually experience this reality. It sounds great. Emet, I can get the emet. I can get the truth. Without truth being obnoxious. Truth could be obnoxious. But when Mashiach comes, it's not going to be obnoxious. It's going to be very comfortable. The Midrash says that the whole reason why God created the world in the first place is so he can make this world a home for him. Which translates in English, world being a home for God translates to truth being comfortable. <laughs> not obnoxious. Right? Um, and that's why we pray to God, deliver us, gather us from all the other nations. Let us give thanks to your name. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And again, go back to the Hebrew. Min ha'olam va'ad ha'olam, from the world to the world. Let it be relevant to the world. Forever and world are the same word in Hebrew, olam. And then we conclude that line with, let every being that has a soul praise the Lord. If we really want to believe in this, you got to use the soul. <laughs> Again, we're at a point in, in, in our journey of prayer that the mind and heart aren't there yet. 
So let the soul do it. Let us rely on the soul. Which is our ultimate life. The Hebrew word for soul, the Sarah says Hanashama. In the Hebrew, it's Kol Hanashama. It's the last line of that paragraph. Kol Hanashama Tahaloka. Let every soul praise God. Our sages point out that the word Nishama and the word Nishima, same letters. Nishima means breath. Your soul is your life. That is our true life. Even if our heart and mind aren't there, the soul is what we truly are. That is our breath of life. And within every breath that we take, we can praise God. We could praise our, uh, a deeper reality, not just uh, how we perceive it, and hopefully bridge the gap between the two. I have a question. Go for it. So we do the same prayer every single day, and then we we don't learn or grow from it because every time we're like shocked. We should be like elevated to a point where we kind of know that it's you know it's we we should be at that point already that we know what's coming and what's yeah. next. That's it's an excellent question. Excellent question. There's. The, the purpose of prayer, you know, when you study something, you want to understand. Yeah. But when you pray, what we want is not to understand, but to know. That there's you a. Want it to become part of you. Exactly. But, but like every time, if you say it again and again, and you, then you don't learn of it. You, I mean, you, you, you kind of need to know what's coming. And you but, need to be in a better place so that you can elevate the prayer. Exactly, and that's why we and that's why we recite the same thing every day because it's you could approach it with a different experience each time. So can you interpret it differently, or is it going to always be the same because you want to keep it? Um... No, no. There's so many different ways of interpreting it, and and that's how you're going to grow through the interpretation. Exactly, exactly. Now, look, if we're being honest with ourselves, to pray. If if we were to bear everything in mind that we're discussing in these yeah. prayers, you pray for hours and hours, and you have people that would do that. But, you know, you could focus on a different prayer each time also. So that you can make the prayer meaningful to you. Exactly. And and where you are at. Exactly. And and that's that's bridging the gap. You know, because on the one hand, it's it's meeting you where you're at, but it's hopefully bringing you to to a to Close a higher place. You. Yeah. So there okay. there is that there is that uh, duality. Okay. Good good question. Excellent question. Does it? You know, there's a teaching attributed to Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, who authored the Tanya, where he points out that the Shema. The text of the Shema as written in the Torah has a larger Dalit. The Dalit is written in every text of the Torah with a larger font than all the other letters in the Torah. And throughout the Torah, you have certain letters by tradition, but these letters are larger, these letters sometimes are smaller, and there's a message there. So what's this message of the Shema with that larger Dalit? So he says a Dalit is like the shape of a hammer. You gotta drill that in. You gotta drill that in every single day. It's not studying where you have to learn something new. It's praying where we have to. We're not here to just understand, but we're here to know, which means to to connect on a very deep, personal, emotional level. Let's take a look at the next paragraph. 
uh, bottom of the page 29. We're going to run through this one quickly. I'm going to quickly read through the whole thing. Fill in what the context is. Where it comes from. And then we'll move on real quickly. Okay. Good. Okay. Bottom of 29. This is an excerpt from the book of Psalms. This is literally cut and paste from the book of Psalms for the choir master. Again, much of Psalms is a, good, a big chunk of Psalms to heal him was authored by David Amelech by King David. And a lot of it is it's praises of God. The word to heal him means to praise. And it's a lot of singing, a lot of music for the choir master, a song with instrumental music, a psalm. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his countenance shine upon us forever that your way be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. The nations will extol you, O God. All the nations will extol you. So on this day, going back to what we said earlier, that truth will be revealed. God and his name, God and how he's perceived will be uh, um, aligned. So now it's not just that Jews will recognize God. Everybody will recognize God. The nations will rejoice. And it will be a joyous experience. Because again, <laughs> when truth is obnoxious as it is now, it's it's not a joyous experience. It's a, it's a humbling experience. But when Mashiach comes, it, it's going to be a joyous experience. The nations will rejoice and sing for, for joy. For you will judge the people justly and guide the nations on earth forever. The peoples will extol you, O God. All the peoples will extol you. For the earth will have yielded its produce, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all from the furthest corners of the earth shall fear him. So the tradition is that this psalm, this prayer, again, was written down, was transmitted to us by King David. It was sung by the Levites in the temple. The Levites, the Levim, had a they had their jobs in the temple. Their job was to sing. And there was a choir. The idea of a synagogue choir was not a it's not a recent invention. You had a choir in the Beit HaMikdash that was and, and they had instruments. They had a whole rack of instruments of cymbals and of harps and of, of different um, I think they had some drums, they had violins, and they would. This is what they would sing in the temple. But here's something fascinating that the commentaries point out. Commentaries point out that this psalm has seven verses. What is the uh, uniqueness of seven in relation to the Beit Hamikdash? The seven branches of the menorah. The menorah had a total of seven branches. And if you remember how the menorah was made in the Torah, when the Torah describes it, it had a certain amount of flowers, knobs, and cups. You know, those random cups and goblets that were like used, that were um, fashioned ornamentally on the menorah. There was a total of 49, corresponding to the 49 words in this verse. So this, in, in this uh, paragraph, this paragraph is closely associated with the menorah. Commentaries explain, and, and to explain this is beyond um, knowledge I have at this point and beyond the scope of this class, but each one of these seven verses correspond to the message of each one of the seven branches of the menorah. Each one of the seven branches of the menorah have a different um, theme. 
By the way, in many sitters, let me see if we have one here. I don't think we do. If you look in a, no, unfortunately not. Okay. Should have come prepared. If you look in a Sephardic sitter, this is fascinating. If you look in a Sephardic sitter, many Sephardic sitters, maybe not all of them, the um, this paragraph is actually written with a in the shape of a menorah. <laughs> They've typed the, with the syntax of a menorah, like the words are all curved. It's that that's a there's a Sephardic tradition to to do that, which is an interesting thing. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, before we go on, questions, comments, thoughts. Okay, let's do it. Page 30. There's a three-liner on page 30. We're going to go through these three lines because it's along the same theme. And then we're going to stop. Prayer, as we know from the Zohar, is likened to a ladder. You know, going back to our con our conversation on elevation, it's a ladder, but it's not just a prayer is not a geographical elevation. <laughs> it's deepening the experience. We start off with Moda'ani, which is blind faith. We end off with the Aleinu, which is internalized emotional deep faith, as we'll discuss when we get there. And we're filling the gap in between throughout prayer. And there's different breakpoints. There's different rungs throughout prayer. We're about to start what's called Pesukei de Zimra, which is Hebrew for verses of praise. And we're going to discuss what the significance of this next rung in the ladder is next week in greater detail. Because there's a lot to talk about that as to what that means. But before we get there, we're going to go through these three lines. This is so important. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. This is crazy because as a kid growing up, read these three lines and it's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I trust some Kabbalist from the 2000 years ago knew what they were talking about, but I don't know what's going on or why that's even relevant. Um, didn't bother me as a kid. But as I feel like as I've gotten older, I'm an old man. No, I'm kidding. As I've died, Coke aging me. As I've matured, not gotten older, but as I've matured, I I've come to an appreciation that everything in this sitter is a part of this journey. There's no whatever. I can't say I understand everything in the sitter. That's not what I'm. Mean necessarily trying to say but what i'm saying is every i i have this conviction that everything in this sitter is relevant to the journey of becoming our best selves of internalizing our faith our sages believed that blind faith alone is not acceptable and not sustainable it's necessary at the beginning but at some point, our faith has to mature. When we're children, we have blind faith. But 
that's that's the core. That's like the nucleus. But as we go out and, and you know, when we say Moda'ani, we just woke up in the morning, we're like children. We have this pure faith like a baby. It's beautiful. But we're at a point in prayer where our faith has to mature. And you'll soon see what I mean. Going back to our conversation about bridging the gap. That's what maturing faith is. Bridging the gap between reality and our perception of it. Take a look on page 30. Those the, the three-liner here. In the Hebrew, it says, L'shem yichud. For the sake of the union of the Holy One, blessed be He, with His Shekhinah. What does Shekhinah mean? Shekhinah means the divine presence. So the purpose, our goal here, this is like a mission statement. We're about to do this for the purpose of, why are we about to get into the uh, meat and potatoes of prayer, the next rung on the ladder? In order to unite the Holy One, blessed be He, God, and his presence. We'll soon see what that means. Or in Kabbalistic lingo, to unite the name Yud and He with the Vav and the He. There's the four letters of God's name, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. That's his sacred name in which we don't pronounce. We don't even know how to pronounce it. It was pronounced once at the Holy Service on Yom Kippur by the high priest. But during exile, our Kabbalists teach that the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He have become separated. We'll soon see what that means. But we're here to unite it. Okay, all of this will make sense in a moment. Just just bear with me. <laughs> in a perfect union in, in, in the name of all of Israel. The Holy One, blessed be He, means God. God as He is independent of creation. We often define God as a creator, and he is a creator. But that's not who he is. That's what he does. Who he is and what he does are, are not the... In other words, if he didn't create, he would still be God. <laughs> Which means God isn't just a creator. It's something he did or does. But God is God. It's the essence of God. And then there's his Shekhinah, his divine presence. Again, that's like his name, as we discussed earlier. There's how he's perceived. There's who he is. There's how who how we perceive him. And our goal of prayer, our mission statement here, is to unite the two. There's God's four-letter divine, uh, divine name, the four letters, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. The Yud and the He represent again, that represents this idea of this is who God is. I don't necessarily feel it, but at least I can understand it. It's expressed intellectually. Kabbalists explain that the Yud is Chachma, is the ability to be open-minded to something, wisdom. Hey, is Bina, the ability to understand. But do I feel it? Do I really care? Does it really matter? That's the Vav in the Hey. Vav represents emotion, its extension, 
the shape of the vav has, is an extended shape and that represents emotion. And the last hey, the final hey, represents practical expression. Do I actually express this practically? Do I talk about it? Do I do it? Do I act that way? There's a gap. There's a gap between how I perceive and what I know to be true with my mind and what I feel to be true with my heart. And my goal in prayer is to unite the two, to unite God and his divine presence, to unite God and how I perceive him, to unite what I could see as true with my mind to what I know to, uh, and what I feel to be true with my heart to bridge that gap because they're tearing me in two different ways, in two different uh, directions sometimes. And there's an immense amount of tension. And I can only relieve that tension with prayer. So I'll tell you two stories. Can I ask something? Yeah, can yeah, I quite, yeah something? go for it. This is a perfect time so, for questions. Yeah, so so basically, is it that we all are bridging the gap, so we all see it the same? It's the people of Israel. It, or is exactly. it just myself? It, it's so, both. It, there, there's the individual, but if we yeah. all bridge the gap, it's all of Israel, there's going to be an immense sense of, of unity. So then, then the thing with being everybody will recognize it, and that they met because it's real, and you don't need a name. It's because this thing is bringing you to that point. Exactly, and 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 there's a unity that comes with that. You know, yeah. when when it's just about what I feel, my own perception, and this is what I believe. So, you know, we all see things differently, and there isn't unity. So, so this is making everybody perceive it the same, and that's why it's bringing together all the letters because it's all the names, yes, and all the different. Exactly. On, on the other hand, it's still going to be meaningful. It's not going to be obnoxious. Yeah. So it'll be individuals making it meaningful, and it's going to be, but it's going to be everybody in unison, exactly. like together. Yeah. Exactly, and and that's real emet. Real emet mm -hmm. is unifying, but it's still personal. Yeah. Right. How do I know if it's really God? It's unifying, but it's still personal. It's still relevant. And everybody else believes it, then it must be. Because um, when the Mashiach comes, everybody's going to believe the same thing. Then it means it's a man. Exactly. It the same. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So I'll, I'll tell you two stories. To, uh, let me start off with a story number one. I'm trying to decide which one to do first. They're both great. Okay. In 1906, Rabbi Shalom Dover of Lubavitch who at the time was serving as the Lubavitcher Rebbe, was going through a very difficult time. He's going through a lot of health complications. And he booked an appointment with a doctor in Austria, a well-known doctor named Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud is interviewing him. I don't know if this was a counseling session or not. The, the uh, many say it was, but it's it's definitely not clear from the story. But Freud was interviewing him and asking him what his daily schedule was. And as he's reading through the report, he says, "I notice a big part of Freud was Jewish, by the way. A big part of your schedule is teaching Hasidus, teaching Hasidic philosophy." teaching the Hasidic perspective of Torah, the Hasidic perspective on life. He says, you're, you're spending a lot of time on this. Can I ask you what it is? <laughs> so now, Rabbi Schneerson has a opportunity to share with Freud deep 
Jewish wisdom, the soul of Torah, literally on one foot. He has to really condense it. He has to really say it in a very succinct way if he wants the message to be carried over. So here's what he says. He says, there is what you know to be true with your mind. There's seeing reality. But then there's what you feel with your heart. And he says, the point of Hasidus is to unite the two, to get them both in sync. Your heart can tell you if you like somebody. Your mind can tell you who they are, objectively. But if you can bring, if you could bridge the two and like who they are, not just real, that's what Hasidus does. So if you could see who God is and like God, <laughs> if you could experience truth and have it not be obnoxious, but it be comfortable. So Freud says, wait a minute, how is that even possible? The mind and heart are two different worlds. Two independent worlds. They have no connection to each other. That's what Freud believed. So he said they are two independent worlds. They must be bridged. And if you're not going to bridge them, if you can't bridge them, you're not yet at a point where you can bridge them, at least let them work together on some level. At least have phone calls in between. Apparently the phone, when when was the phone invented? It was the late 1800s? So mix, yeah. So he said at least have a phone connection between the two. That's story number one, depicting this. Story number two. There was a veteran Chabad rabbi named Reb Shloim Chaim Kesselman. Reb Shloim Chaim Kesselman, in the later part of his life, ran the Chabad Yeshiva in Lod, which was near Tel Aviv, and later in Kafar Chabad. But he lived in communist Russia, and much of his life was on the run. Fascinating person because you're on the run from communists constantly getting arrested and punished for trying to teach Judaism, for trying to teach this this truth. And um but he was a, he was a very happy person, very interesting. But here's the story. He was he had to run away. He, they were after him, the KGB was after him, and he had to run away and he was in hiding. And he was in an underground yeshiva teaching Torah. And he was focusing on, you know, his knack was teaching Hasidic philosophy. I don't know. If I were, God forbid, being pursued by a government, you got to hide. But how do you have the energy to teach while hiding? <laughs> he did it. It was amazing. Amazing. But the sad thing was he was away from his family for many, many years. And he had two twi- He had a he had a set of twins. He had a daughter and he had twins. And he didn't get to meet them until later. He missed their whole uh, infantry, maybe even toddlerhood. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. His wife sent him in the mail a picture of the twins and a lock of their hair. Because they were three years old, they had their first haircut. It was a big deal. So he sent them a picture. This is in the 1920s, maybe at this point, closer to the uh, 30s or 40s. But he got a picture of his boys, which he was excited to see. And he got a lock of his hair. And he was teaching in his class this idea of there's God and there's how we perceive God. 
there's reality and there's our perception of reality. There's objective truth and there's subjective experience, right? This this duality. He was teaching this concept in text based. And he says, I have a perfect analogy for this. And he pulls out the picture of his boys and the lock of hair. He says, the lock of hair is a piece of my son. It's him. Or both of them because it was twins. But I can't see him. I don't know anything about the personality. I don't know what their smile looks like. There's no experience there. There's just the raw truth. The picture is not him. It's an image of him. But I get to see personality. I get to see what they look like. I get to see what their smile is like. My wife sent me both. He got a piece of his child or his children, and their personality. We want God, but we want his personality too. We don't want just the personality, just the experience. We want the truth behind it. And that's what we're going to experience when Mashiach comes. And we recite this line because this is what the entire prayer is going to be, that the entire sitter is going to be slowly, slowly, slowly unpacking. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. One second. Who's recording? I'm recording. Okay.